Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hello, and welcome to The Other Half. Episode 2.31, Alex of Hesse, The Shadow of Rasputin. Well, we're six episodes into this series on Alex, and you may have noticed that we're not going to be done after this show. This is going to be our longest ever miniseries, but I hope that you're enjoying it. Last time, we saw Alex adapt to her new role as a wartime nurse after the outbreak of World War I, working with her daughters at a hospital she set up at Zasko Selo. We left the action on a bit of a cliffhanger, as Nikki sacked his commander-in-chief of the military, replaced him with himself, and headed off to the front, leaving Alex in charge back in Petrograd, the new name for the city of St. Petersburg. Today, we will see how Alex fared as Nikki's kinder sort of regent, and how her actions contributed to the fall of the Romanovs. But before we get going, I'd like to thank all of my Patreon supporters who keep this little show on the air. It's been a little while since I did a shout-out, and so there are quite a few – so, thanks to Yelena, Tiffany, Yael, Sophie, Sharon, Gillian, Amali, Jay, Ashley, Nicole, and Kayla. You are all amazing people, and I am so appreciative of your support. If you too would like to support the show, then head on over to patreon.com forward slash the other half podcast. To all my new listeners, welcome. To the rest of you, welcome back. In medieval times, kings and emperors led their armies into battle as a matter of course. It was fairly typical of them. And when they did so, they often left their wives back in charge at home. But when I say in charge, they weren't usually the ones making all the decisions, but they were the figureheads, keeping an eye on proceedings, making sure that things were done as their husband would have wanted, and, most importantly, 
carefully watching for any overmighty nobles that might be looking to usurp their absent king. But in these slightly more modern times, where government was far larger and more sophisticated, this had fallen out of fashion. For the most part, kings and emperors, even those as powerful as the Romanov Tsars, tended to leave the fighting to the generals rather than going on campaign themselves. And even if they did, they would leave a trusted minister in charge at home, not their wife. And if they did leave their wife in charge, she would be expected to be at the heart of government. That, after all, is kind of the point. She's supposed to keep an eye on things. But as usual, Nikki and Alex didn't do the things the way one might expect. Alex stayed at Zasko Selo, doing her nursing and keeping her eye on things via letters from trusted advisors. And of course, her trusted advisor was none other than Rasputin. He was the man at the centre of it all. He set himself up in a flat on the third floor of an unassuming block in the working-class district of St. Petersburg. There, he set up something between a court and a brothel. Every day, a line of people would snake their way up the stairs and around the block. They would come from every walk of life and social strata. You would have countesses mixing with courtesans, professors and peasants, workers and civil servants. They came seeking favours, because they knew that he had the R of the Tsarina, and that she held massive sway over the Tsar. They would bring their arguments, gifts, and or sexual favours to sway him. It could be for mundane things, like a promotion or a government contract, but it could be for more pressing matters, like transferring someone's husband from the front line, or firing government ministers. If Rasputin liked what he heard, he would hand the petitioner a note that simply said, my dear and valued friend, do this for me, Grigori. Rasputin had round-the-clock police surveillance, partly for his protection and partly to keep an eye on what was going on, and their reports are a wonderful repository of what was going on. Here are some examples. Quote, Anastasia Shapalenkova, the wife of a doctor, has given Rasputin a carpet. Quote, Madame Linkhart visited to ask him to intervene on her husband's behalf. Rasputin proposed that she should kiss him. She refused, however, and departed. Quote, Maria Gill, the wife of a captain in the 145th Regiment, slept at Rasputin's. Quote, the wife of Colonel Tatarinov visited Rasputin and the starrets embraced and kissed a young girl in her presence. She found the incident so painful that she decided never to visit Rasputin again. These notes, and many more like them, were the talk of the town and were sold on the black market. This meant that there were a lot of forgeries floating around, and lurid stories of feasts and great orgies were rampant, and while there was quite a bit of exaggeration, Rasputin's behaviour in this period, sort of between 1915 and 16, was indeed getting more and more out of control. There was one incident in particular at one of Moscow's premier night spots, where Rasputin got incredibly drunk, smashed up a very expensively appointed room, tried to seduce a load of women, and, when the police tried to evict him, responded by dropping his trousers and presenting his penis to all onlookers. The deputy interior minister, General Vladimir Dushonchovsky, wrote a report of the event to the Tsar, which was a courageous act. Nicholas furiously admonished Rasputin, who denied all wrongdoing and vowed revenge on Dushonchovsky. When Alex heard about this, she burst into tears. She did not doubt the truth of the report, but feared what the revelations might mean. If Rasputin was sent away, it could mean the death of her son, and she would not let that happen. 
She was further infuriated when the report was leaked to the press, as Duhanchovsky had been not shy with sharing it with his friends, and the report even made its way into the hands of Grand Duke Dmitri, her nephew and the ward of her sister Ella. Alex was determined to make Rasputin's wish come true and ensure that the general was fired. She wrote the following to her husband, quote, My enemy Duyanchovsky has shown that vile, filthy paper to Dmitri. If we let our friend be persecuted, we and our country will suffer from it. I am so weary. Such heartaches and pain from all of this. The idea of dirt being spread about one we venerate is more than terrible. Ah, my love, when at last will you thump with your hand upon the table and scream at Duanchovsky and others when they act wrongly? One does not fear you, and one must. They must be frightened of you. Otherwise, all will sit on us. This letter, in just a few lines, encapsulates all that concerned Alex at this time. She saw threats to Rasputin as, by extension, threats to her family, and therefore the nation. She extols Nikki to meet that threat and destroy it. She pleads with him to be stronger, to be firmer, and counters it all with a tender message of love. And it worked. Duanchowski was sacked and replaced with someone more amenable to Rasputin and Alex. While this is one of the more high-profile incidents, it was far from isolated. Reams of reports flooded into Zarskoselo about Rasputin's antics, and Alex simply disregarded them frequently taking action against those that wrote them. To all around Alex, her faith in Rasputin seemed incomprehensible, but she was convinced of his value, and his powers were proved again and again in her eyes. For example, in January 1915, a train carrying her best friend Anna Virobova derailed near Petrograd. Anna lay trapped for hours with a shattered skull and a severed spine, her legs trapped and crushed by a radiator. When she was finally found and extricated, the doctors believed that she would die, but after examining her, Rasputin declared that she would live, and she did. And then, again later that year, he once again demonstrated his remarkable powers over her son. When he went to command the army, Nicholas took Alexei with him. This was against Alex's wishes, as she never wanted him out of her sight, but Nicholas overruled her arguing that it was essential to give him the experience of leadership and how to command an army, something that his own father had failed to do. In her day letters to the Stavka, she urged him to keep a close watch on Alexei and not to let anything happen to him. But, inevitably, something did. He caught a cold while reviewing troops, and a violent sneeze caused a nosebleed that would not clot. Nikki rushed him back to Zaskoselo, where Alex took him into her arms, his blood smearing across her clothes. Again, the doctors said that he was unlikely to survive. As she always did when doctors said there was little hope, Alex sent for Rasputin, who prayed at the foot of his bed before pronouncing, quote, Don't be alarmed, nothing will happen. The next morning, Alexei was sitting up in bed and talking brightly. Seemingly, Rasputin had done it again. But Rasputin's influence was now going far beyond just doing favours for people or healing the Tsarevich. Alex had, at her disposal, a man who was, in her own words, a man of God, a miracle worker. And if you had such a tool at your disposal, and a nation in great turmoil thanks to war and political unrest, why not use him to help heal Russia as he had healed her son? Now, some historians have portrayed Alex in this period as being in complete thrall to Rasputin, who ruled Russia from the shadows, 
controlling Alex like a puppet into making her husband do his bidding. This was certainly the view in the press, in court and on the streets, but this isn't really the case. Alex trusted Rasputin and took his advice, but she was a strong-willed woman who knew her own mind. She'd spent years urging her husband to be stronger and firmer in the exercise of his rule, to stick true to his convictions and enact his will without compromise. It was her great frustration that Nikki vacillated and compromised, and now that she was the power in town, she was eager to practice what she preached. Over her time in charge, she made her own choices. Rasputin fed into these decisions and sometimes got his way, but there were just as many times in which Alex did not take his advice. But most of the time, it would go something like this. Alex would get it in her head that such and such a minister or official needed to go. She would then ask the advice of Rasputin, and he would invariably agree, knowing that that would keep him in favour. Very rarely would he ever disagree with her, and in turn that gave Alex further confidence in her own decision-making as now her choices, which were backed up by the God-given right to rule that had been delegated to her by her husband, were further affirmed by the support of her man of God, a sort of double divine stamp of approval. So what was driving Alex's decision-making? What would make her fire a minister or enact such and such a policy? Well, Alex seems to have had two overarching priorities that drove everything else. The preservation of autocracy and the protection of Rasputin. She regarded any opposition to these as an implicit attack on the very nature of Romanov rule, and thus something that needed to be crushed. Because, for her, the main goal was to preserve her husband's rule, and to ensure that her son took over a country in robust health. This is made clear in a letter that she wrote to Nicholas. Quote, I am fully convinced that great and beautiful times are coming for your reign and Russia. We must give a strong country to baby, and dare not be weak for his sake, else he will have a harder reign. Let our legacy be a lighter one for Alexei. He has a strong will and a mind of his own. Don't let things slip through your fingers and make him build all over again. Be Peter the Great, Ivan the Terrible, Emperor Paul. Crush them all under you. In a playful, yet equally illustrative reply, Nikki wrote, quote, Tender thanks for the severe scolding. I read it with a smile because you speak as if to a child. Your poor, weak-willed hubby. The British ambassador reportedly met with Alex, who told him, quote, I have no patience with the minister who tried to prevent him, meaning Nicholas, from doing his duty. The situation requires firmness. The emperor, unfortunately, is weak, but I am not, and I intend to be firm. This firmness primarily showed itself in her willingness, indeed eagerness, to fire ministers she did not like or whom she did not trust. Now, of course, she didn't have the authority to hire or fire ministers on her own will. That was her husband's reserve. But she still managed to do it. Nicholas's cabinet, also known as the Council of Ministers, was made up of 13 office holders. And when he decided to take command of the armed forces, eight of them offered their resignations in protest. Nikki managed to persuade them to stay on, but Alex immediately made it her mission to have them removed by hook or by crook. Now, as I said, she did not have the authority to hire or fire ministers, but she did have a great deal of influence over Nicholas. She set about her task with single-minded intent. First of all was the interior minister, who had only been in post for two months, whose main crime was to support his deputy during the Duanchovsky affair. 
Next was the Minister of Religion, for much the same reason. The Ministers of Agriculture and Finance came next, and many more after that. Between 1915 and 1917, Alex went through four Prime Ministers, five Interior Ministers, four Agricultural Ministers, and three Ministers of War, Transport and Foreign Affairs, respectively. But she didn't just have a passion for firing people, she was also keen to keep around people that she considered loyal. For example, the Prime Minister at the time was a man called Ivan Gormikin, who had been around for donkey's years. This was his second term as Prime Minister, and at 77 years old, he was clearly not quite possessing as many marbles as one might want in a Prime Minister. Alex fought hard to keep Gormikin, but eventually pressure from the Duma caused the man to resign. In his place, Alex campaigned for an obscure former mayor of Moscow called Boris Sturmer to take the job, ahead of some more well-known and better qualified candidates. Why did she favour him? Well, as an ultra-conservative, he was ideologically sound. And Rasputin liked him too. She wrote letter after letter urging Nikki to make Sturmer prime minister. And eventually, he agreed, despite nigh on everyone else telling him that it was a terrible idea. My favourite description of Russia's new Prime Minister comes from the French ambassador, who called him, quote, worse than a mediocrity, a third-rate intellect, a mean spirit, low character, doubtful honesty, no experience, and no idea of state business. The press shared this view, seeing the obviously terrible appointment as the work of Rasputin. They also attacked Sturmer for his Germanic name, leading him to petition the Tsar to be able to change it. But Alex was against the move, so Sturmer he remained. Sturmer was far from the worst choice that Alex and Rasputin ever made. No, that honour goes to Alexei Kovostov. He was a rather rotund right-wing politician who described himself as a man lacking any form of restraint. Rasputin met him at a rowdy nightclub. Absolutely hammered, Rasputin had decided that the band's lead singer was a bit pants, so he looked around to see if he could find anyone better. His eyes settled on Kvostov. He went over to him, clapped him on the back, and said, quote, Brother, you go and help them sing. You are fat and can make a lot of noise. That he did, and Rasputin was so impressed that he recommended that Alex make him Minister of the Interior. Alex duly wrote to Nikki, recommending him for the job, and the Tsar gave him the rubber stamp. Kvostov was, predictably, terrible, but that did not stop him from conniving and plotting to get his hands on the top job. But his most dramatic heel turn came against his own benefactor. Kvostov had formed a little cabal who planned to rule Russia from behind the scenes and brought Rasputin in due to his influence over the Romanovs. Shockingly, Rasputin was not entirely reliable as the member of a secret conspiracy, and Kvostov was worried that the starets might expose him. Therefore, he contracted a hitman to have Rasputin murdered, but the hitman got cold feet and was then contracted by another member of the cabal to kill Kvostov, because why the hell not? After three terrible assassination attempts failed, the whole thing came out into the open, and Kvostov was forced to resign amidst the most enormous scandal. That's what you get, I guess, when you take recommendations from your drunk friend who met some dude in a nightclub. Alex was understandably shocked and distraught by the news, writing to her husband, quote, I'm so wretched that we, through Grigori, recommended Kvostov to you. It leaves me no peace that I let myself be imposed upon. 
One would imagine that after this disaster, Alex might stop seeking advice on political appointments from Rasputin. But no, barely a moment passed before she was intriguing against the war minister, a man called Polivanov. He was a moderate who wanted to work with the Duma rather than Alex's preferred position, which was to pretend that the Duma did not exist. He also hated Rasputin, which sealed his fate. First, Alex wrote in a letter, quote, Forgive me, but I don't like the war minister. Then, a little later, quote, Quickly clear out Polivanov, any honest man better than him. And then, when Nikki didn't seem to be getting the hint, came this, quote, Polivanov, simply treacherous, spoke of responsible government which all scream for, even good ones who do not realise we are not all for it. Lovey mine, don't dawdle. Make up your mind. It's far too serious. Hurry up, sweetheart. You need wifey to be behind pushing you. Promise me you will at once change the Minister of War. Under such pressure from his wife, Nicky was only ever going to fold, which he did. The man he picked, or I should say Alex picked, was an old general called Shuvalev, of whom one British general who knew him said that he, quote, had no knowledge of his work, but his devotion to the emperor was such that if his majesty were to come into the room and ask him to throw himself out the window, he would do it at once. That was exactly the sort of man that Alex wanted. Blindly loyal men. Talent optional. I won't go through all the various men that came and went under Alex's inept tenure in charge, but there is one more man that we need to talk about, and his name is Alexander Protopopov. He was the man who replaced Kvostov at the Interior Ministry, and won his job because he was an ultra-conservative monarchist who was friends with Rasputin. Nicholas acquiesced to Alex's request, but expressed surprise at his nomination, noting, quote, Our friends' opinions are sometimes very strange, as you know yourself. Therefore, one must be careful, especially with appointments to high office. All these changes make my head go around. In my opinion, they are too frequent. In any case, they are not good for the internal situation of the country, as each new man brings with him alterations in the administration. This was clearly a warning, albeit a rather weak one, to Alex to stop chopping and changing ministers so much. Not that it stopped her. Indeed, not long after having Protopopov appointed as interior minister, she gave him the agriculture brief as well, not even consulting Nicholas about it. The Duma screamed with rage at this appointment, as they view Protopopov as being mentally unstable. For example, he made himself a special uniform for his new position, which caused people to burst out with laughter when he first showed up to work. He would speak to an icon that he kept in his desk, and consulted with a Tibetan quack doctor who gave him all manner of potions and artefacts to help him do his job effectively. He gave incoherent, rambling speeches, and it was widely rumoured that he was a necrophiliac. What actually appears to be the case is that he suffered from an advanced case of syphilis. And this was the man in charge of all the factories, the food supply, internal security, you know, really all important stuff if you're in the middle of a war. He was, in short, an absolute joke, but Alex stood by him resolutely. In November 1916, Boris Sturmer was finally fired by the Tsar and replaced by a thoroughly sensible candidate called Alexander Trepov. He was a conservative monarchist, but one open to some moderate reforms and accommodation with the Duma. This was exactly the sort of approach that the Tsar needed to be taking, 
but these views, of course, made him an enemy of Alex and Rasputin. She wrote to Nikki the following, and her words really do betray her here. Quote, Trepov I personally do not like, and can never have the same feeling for him as to old Gormikin and Sturmer. They were of the good old sort. Those two loved me and came to me for every question that worried them so as not to disturb you. This one, alas, doubt caring for me, and if he doesn't trust me and our friend, things will be different. Basically, she missed her weak-willed yes-men and feared this new, more formidable character would want her and her minions out of power. And she was right to be worried. Trepov had, as a condition of taking the job from the Tsar, arranged the sacking of Protopopov. When Alex found out, she was furious and sent back a barrage of letters to her husband, imploring him to change her mind. Quote, Don't go change Protopopov now. He will be all right. Oh, lovey, you can trust me. I may not be clever enough, but I have strong feeling, and that helps more than the brain often. Then the next day, she wrote, quote, Lovey, my angel, don't change Protopopov. I had a long talk with him yesterday. The man is as sane as anyone. He is quiet and calm and utterly devoted, which one can, alas, say a few. And then again, quote, Darling, remember that it does not lie in the man Protopopov, but it's the question of monarchy and your prestige now, which must not be shattered in the time of the Duma. Remember, the Tsar rules, and not the Duma. Forgive my writing, but I am fighting for your reign and baby's future. Under this pressure, once again, Nikki caved, and Protopopov survived. Furious, Trepov handed in his resignation, but the Tsar refused him. But after Trepov tried to bribe Rasputin into keeping his nose out of political affairs, Nicholas was persuaded to accept the resignation. Trepov was widely considered to be the last competent minister that the Tsar ever had. Now that he was gone, all that was left were Alex's men. And what a sorry lot they were. So far in this episode, we've mainly focused on Alex's actions in the capital, with her chopping and changing of ministers. But, lest we forget, there was a war on. One would imagine that Alex would have enough on her plate, what with her job as a nurse and her side gig as de facto regent of the nation's government, but she was also putting her nose into military affairs. And this wasn't just about the calling of removal of generals, she was getting into the movements of soldiers and the timing of attacks. In one letter, she wrote that Rasputin, quote, begs you to order that one should advance near Riga, says it is necessary, otherwise the Germans will settle down so firmly through all the winter that it will cost endless bloodshed. He says this is now the most essential thing and begs you seriously to order ours to advance. He says we can and we must. Quite why Rasputin was so keen on this is unclear. Possibly he had his ear turned by some armchair general in one of his apartment appointments, but this was far from an isolated incident. Alex and Rasputin had never been particularly in favour of the war, and especially worried about the high number of casualties being inflicted, as they saw it, by incompetent generals. The generals were equally concerned about Alex's influence, and were exasperated by the Tsar giving them orders based on something that his wife, or worse Rasputin, had asked them to do. They pleaded with Nicky not to pass on military secrets to his wife, 
as they knew that she would just send them all on to Rasputin, and once he got it, who knows who he might blurt them out to. But Nicholas refused to stop confiding in Alex. It was one of the sweetest parts of their relationship that they shared everything, but counselled her not to pass on news of military affairs to anyone else. In repeated letters, he would say, quote, I beg you, my love, do not communicate these details to anyone. I have written them only for you. Not a single soul should know of it. But as sure as night follows day, Alex would show the letters to Rasputin and would say something like, quote, He won't mention it to another soul. Is there any wonder that people thought that Alex and Rasputin were agents for Germany with this kind of reckless behaviour? Their greatest meddling, though, came during the Brusilov Offensive. 1916 saw Russia launch its biggest offensive of the war. Called the Brusilov Offensive after the Russian general that masterminded it, the attack saw nearly 2 million Russian soldiers advance against the Austro-Hungarians in Galicia. The attack saw enormous early success and broke the back of the Austro-Hungarian army, which was never the same again, but there was a bitter price to pay in Russian dead and wounded. Alex was deeply concerned about the casualties, and after consulting Rasputin, wrote to Nikki, quote, Our friend finds better that one should not advance so obstinately as the losses will be too great. And then later, quote, Our friend hopes we won't climb over the Carpathians and try and take them, as he repeats, the losses will be too great. Whether through this advice or some other inclination, Nicholas did order a pause to the offensive, which delighted Alex, only for him to be talked out of it by his generals. When she heard this, Alex wrote back, quote, Our friend is very much put out that Brusilov has not listened to your order to stop the advance, says you are inspired from above to give that order, and God would bless it. Now, he says again, useless losses. When Nicky refused to countermand his generals again, Alex upped the ante, quote, Oh, give you the order again to Brusilov, stop this useless slaughter. Our generals don't count the lives anymore, hardened to losses, and that is a sin. Chastened, Nikki again called a halt to the offensive. While there were some military considerations, such as the problems of supply and troop exhaustion that could excuse it, there is little doubt that Alex's letter campaign was a big reason why Russia's most successful military campaign of the war was halted before the generals thought it prudent. So all of this, the chopping and changing of ministers, and interference in the war effort, combined to make Alex's name mud in Petrograd. Some thought that she was a German spy, others that Rasputin was the German spy, and that Alex had allowed herself to be corrupted by him. There were calls, even from Nicholas's supporters, for Alex to be removed from the city because of the damage that she was doing. One monarchist deputy in the Duma summed this whole situation up well in this description. Quote, She is very clever. She is far above her surroundings. She is a contempt for Petersburg. She is sure the simple folk adore her. She and Rasputin? No, that's impossible. Anything you like, but not that. Her domination over her husband is itself an open revolt against autocracy, and is terribly misleading for everyone else. What kind of autocracy is that? Even for the most devoted loyal hearts, for whom respect for the throne is a sense, it is poison. It poisons the very instinct of monarchy. Just because of the weakness of one husband to one wife, the sovereign offends his people, and the people offends their sovereign. The scandal is too foul to discuss. He cannot clear it up, 
and you cannot ask him to. How awful to have an autocracy without an autocrat. And that was from a supporter. Even from within the family, a revolt was brewing. We already know from the previous miniseries that Alex more or less broke off relations with her sister Ella over Rasputin. Nicholas's mother also gave him an ultimatum. Send away Rasputin, or she would leave Petrograd. He, of course, refused to give up the starets, so his mother Marie left for Kiev. Grand Duke Alexander, one of his brothers-in-law, went to visit Nicky many times to beg him to stop taking Alex's advice. But the Tsar refused, saying, quote, I believe no one but my wife. Another relative wrote him a long and detailed letter trying to explain the seriousness of the situation. I will quote part of it to you. Quote, You often told me that you trusted no one and were constantly being betrayed. If this is true, the remark should apply above all to your wife, who, though she loves you, is constantly leading you in error, surrounded as she is by people in the grip of the spirit of evil. You believe Alexandra Fyodorovna. That is natural, but the words she utters are the outcomes of clever intrigues. They are not the truth. If you are powerless to rid yourself of such influences, at least be on your guard against the unceasing and systematic intriguers who use your wife as a tool. Believe me, if I stress my desire that you should cast off the chains that imprison you, it is not for my personal motives, but only with the hope of saving you and your throne and our dear country from the terrible and irreparable catastrophe that lies ahead. Nicholas didn't even read this impassioned letter, instead forwarding it directly to his wife. She responded by calling the man a traitor and suggested that Nicky send him to Siberia. A parade of grand dukes made their way to the Stavka, and all of them left disappointed and angered. They weren't blind. They could see that Russia's cities were pressure cookers of resentment, and none more so than the capital. Lack of food, lack of rights, terrible wages, terrible working conditions, and the millions of casualties were bringing Russia to the brink of another revolution. It became quickly apparent to many in the royal family and elite society that something had to be done to save the Romanos from themselves. If they wouldn't rid themselves of Rasputin's evil influence, then they would have to do it for them. The leader of the plot was a man called Felix Yusupov, a friend of Alex's sister Ella, one of the richest men in Russia, and the husband of Nikki's favourite niece. He had spent over a year gaining Rasputin's trust, visiting him regularly for a cure for some unspecified illness. They would hang out together and have long discussions, but all the while Yusupov was planning the Staritz's death. He brought into the conspiracy a number of men, including Nicholas's nephew and Ella's ward Dmitri, and the date for the assassination was set for the 29th of December, apparently because that was the only spot in Dmitri's busy social calendar for he was free. On that day, Yusupov invited Rasputin round to his palace, seemingly using his attractive wife Irina as bait. Rasputin could never resist a pretty face. When he arrived at the Yusupov palace, Rasputin was offered cake and wine, all of it laced with poison. He ate and drank greedily, but seemingly to no effect. Yusupov grew more and more confused and worried. He had been told that the food and drink had sufficient poison to kill an elephant, and yet this man just kept on eating and drinking. Indeed, he was getting drunk, and ordered his host to play him a song on the guitar. After a while, 
he excused himself, leaving Yankee Doodle playing, while he consulted with his accomplices who are hiding in the next room. He took a pistol with him this time, and shot Rasputin. The starrets screamed in pain and fell to the ground. Gathering around the body, the conspirators declared him dead and made plans to move him. But when Rysupov went over to the body a little later and shook it, something extraordinary happened. Rasputin's eyes opened. Yusupov later wrote, quote, I then saw both eyes, the green eyes of a viper, staring at me with an expression of diabolical hatred. The blood ran cold in my veins. My muscles turned to stone. Rasputin rose to his feet and fled, tearing off part of Yusupov's uniform as he left. Yusupov ran after him, screaming to anyone that could hear that Rasputin was alive and that he was escaping. Not that his quarry was being at all stealth. As he ran, Rasputin yelled, quote, Felix, Felix, I will tell the Empress everything. As he entered the courtyard of the palace, one of the conspirators levelled his pistol and fired three shots. The first two missed, but the third hit Rasputin in the shoulder, sending him tumbling into the snow. A fourth shot was fired at point-blank range into his head. The next morning, the conspirators rolled up Rasputin's body in a curtain and threw his lifeless corpse into the Neva. They had done it. They had rid Russia of Rasputin. But would it be too late? The news of Rasputin's death was greeted with utter jubilation throughout Russia. The French ambassador wrote of people kissing each other in the streets and giving thanks in the city's cathedrals. Far from being condemned as a murderer, Yusupov was celebrated as a national hero. Of course, the view in Saska Selo was very different. When Alex first heard the news, she refused to believe it. She could not believe that a man of God, the man upon whom she depended on so much, could really be gone. It only truly sank in a few days later when Rasputin's body was discovered. He was buried in a small private funeral in Zasko Selo, attended only by Nikki, Alex, their children, and a few select members of the royal family. One of those in attendance wrote that they were, quote, dressed in mourning, and the empress carried some white flowers. She was very pale but quite composed, although I saw her tears fall when the oak coffin was taken out of the police van. The burial service was read by the chaplain, and after the emperor and empress had thrown earth onto the corpse, the empress distributed her flowers between the grand duchesses, and we scattered them onto the coffin. Before the coffin was closed, Alex had placed two objects inside. One was an icon signed by the whole family, and the other was a handwritten letter that read, quote, My dear Marta, give me thy blessing that it may follow me always on the sad and dreary path I have yet to follow here below. And remember us from on high in your holy prayers. Many thought that if Rasputin was removed from the picture, that Alex would utterly collapse. But actually, far from it, it turned her to even greater zeal. She did spend hours every day crying for her lost friend and advisor, but his influence over her had always been greatly overestimated. Her dominance over political affairs was undiminished by his death, and ministers still reported to her even when Nicholas was in Zaska Ceylon. The hirings and firings still occurred, while those slavishly loyal to Alex remained and gathered further prominence. Indeed, Rasputin's death had made things worse, not better, and there was seemingly nothing that anyone could do to stop the slide toward revolution. 
Mikhail Rodsyanko, the president of the Duma, recognised the seriousness of the situation and tried to impress on Nicholas how precarious the situation was. On the 20th of January 1917, he had an audience with the Tsar and set out the situation in blunt terms. Quote, Your Majesty, I consider the state of the country to have become more critical and menacing than ever before. The spirit of all the people is such that the gravest upheavals may be expected. All Russia is unanimous in claiming a change of government and the appointment of a responsible premier invested with the confidence of the nation. Sire, there is not a single honest or reliable man left in your entourage. All the best have either been eliminated or have resigned. It is an open secret that the Empress issues orders without your knowledge, that ministers report to her on matters of state. Indignation against and hatred of the Empress are growing throughout the country. She's looked upon as Germany's champion. Even the common people are speaking of it. To save your family, your majesty, you ought to find some way of preventing the Empress from exercising any influence on politics. Your majesty, do not compel the people to choose between you and the good of the country. At hearing this, Nicholas apparently put his head in his hands and asked a quite extraordinary question to Rodzianko. Quote, Is it possible that for 22 years I have tried to act for the best, and that for 22 years it was all a mistake? This was a dangerous question for Rodzianko to answer, and, to his credit, he did so honestly. Quote, Yes, Your Majesty, for 22 years you have followed the wrong course. But this moment of lucid introspection was not followed by any change in policy. Indeed, the next time Nicholas received Rodzianko, he was openly hostile to him once again. In February, Nikki's oldest friend, Sandro, went to visit Alex at Zasko Selo, in what would be the large stitch attempt to save the dynasty. He was shown into her bedroom, where he found the Empress reclining in bed, dressed in a white lace dressing gown. Nicholas was also there, smoking in a chair in the corner. Sandro explained the situation bluntly to her, as a friend. The people were rioting and striking. Members of the Duma were openly calling for the Tsar to go. The people were on the brink of revolution. She exclaimed, quote, That is not true. The nation is still loyal to the Tsar. Only the treacherous Duma and Petrograd society are our enemies. Sandro replied, quote, I am your friend, so I will point to you that all classes of the population are opposed to your policies. Why can you not concentrate on matters promising peace and harmony? Please, Alex, leave the affairs of state to your husband. They argued back and forth, Nicholas remaining silent in his chair. Sandro pleaded with Alex for her to work with the Duma, to give it more power and voice, for her to sack her incompetent ministers and replace them with men of talent. Finally exclaiming, quote, You have no right to drag your relations down a precipice. You are incredibly selfish. At this, Alex completely lost her temper. Quote, I refuse to continue this dispute. You are exaggerating the danger. Someday, when you are less excited, you will admit that I know better. Seeing that he would get nowhere against this indomitable, impossible woman, and that his friend was not going to intervene on his behalf, Sandro left. He later wrote to another one of his brothers that, quote, The Tsar has ceased to rule Russia. Three weeks later, on Thursday the 8th of March, International Women's Day, the people of the capital snapped. 
They were tired of waiting in queues for hours and hours for their meagre ration of bread, often to only be told that there was none left. It was 40 degrees below zero. They were hungry, they were tired, and they were angry. As they walked through the streets, they were joined by factory workers. They were on strike due to low wages and in sympathy at the sacking of their friends. And finally there came the students, radicalised by socialist politics. A mob quickly formed, rampaging through the streets, smashing windows and looting bakeries. Soldiers watched on, but did not use force to stop them. Indeed, some fraternised with them, saying, Don't worry, we won't shoot. Initially, Nicholas and Alex both didn't think too much of it. Petrograd had seen such demonstrations before. Why should this be any different? Alex issued a decree for strikers to disperse and for food to be distributed equally. But what she didn't realise was that there was no food to be distributed. Her incompetent government had failed to safeguard the food supply, and things were about to go from bad to worse. The next day, the schools were closed, public transport in the city was brought to a halt, and the rioting continued unabated. Even Alex's hand-picked ministers by now grasped the seriousness of the situation and offered their resignations in the vain hope that this might placate the people. They also begged the Tsar to return to Petrograd and take command. His presence should still carry enough weight. But Nicholas refused to sanction either of those things, and continued to act as if nothing was amiss at all. Indeed, it wasn't until Saturday afternoon that he finally issued an order to his military chief in the capital. Quote, Stop the disorders in the capital, which are unacceptable in a difficult time of war. This meant that he was throwing the army against the streets. He believed his troops to still be loyal, but he was severely mistaken. The men left the garrison Petrograd were of poor quality. If they'd been decent, they'd have been on the front lines, and they were not happy about having to take up arms against their fellow Russians. Things started quietly on Sunday morning, but by the afternoon, everything was on fire again. Crowds of demonstrators were met by lines of soldiers, who began to shoot indiscriminately into the crowds, killing hundreds but the casualty rates were not as high as they could have been. Many soldiers refused to fire or shot their guns in the air. When their commanding officers ordered them to shoot the demonstrators, they were often shot instead. Rodzianko, the president of the Duma, had seen enough. He, along with many others at the top of the Russian government, now saw radical constitutional reform as the only way to quieten the streets. He sent the following telegram to Nicholas, essentially telling him to accept democratic reforms or face the ruin of his dynasty. Quote, the situation is serious. The capital is in a state of anarchy. The government is paralysed. The transportation system is broken down. The supply systems for food and fuel are completely disorganised. General discontent is on the increase. There is disorderly shooting in the streets. Some of the troops are firing at each other. It is necessary that some person enjoying the confidence of the country is entrusted immediately with the formation of a new government. There can be no delay. Any procrastination is fatal. I pray to God that at this hour, the responsibility does not fall upon the sovereign. When he received this message, Nicholas angrily dismissed it, saying, That fat Rodzianko has sent me some nonsense which I shall not bother even to answer. On Monday, 12th of March, the Petrograd garrison mutinied. One by one, its regiments left their posts and joined the people in the streets. They sacked the city's arsenal and distributed arms to the mob. 
They broke open the jail cells. They ransacked shops. They torched police stations and government buildings. Those people in government still loyal to the Tsar were now utterly frantic. Nicholas's younger brother, Grand Duke Michael, tried to telephone his brother to urge him to make the necessary reforms. But, incredibly, he was fobbed off with a subordinate, and then forced to wait for 40 minutes before the Tsar found time to talk to him. Eventually, the subordinate called back, quote, The Emperor wishes to express his thanks. He is leaving for Tsarsko Selo, and will decide there. The inference here, of course, is that he wanted to confer with his wife before deciding on a course of action. Now, I am all for communication in a marriage, but this situation called for fast decision-making, and Nicholas did not have the time to wait for several hours while his train travelled to Sarska Selo. Throwing their arms up in the air, the imperial cabinet resigned en masse and went over to the Duma, putting themselves under their protection. Perhaps that way they might escape a violent lynching. The Duma began to form itself into provisional government, while revolutionaries on the streets began to form their own governing council, the Petrograd Soviet. Meanwhile, at the Stavka, unaware that he was in the process of being toppled, Nicholas went to bed. Early the next morning, he boarded the imperial train, but he was diverted along side routes so that trains filled with reinforcements could get to the city before he did, hopefully to restore order. But those troops would not arrive in time. Back in the city, the revolutionaries, their ranks bolstered by mutineers, advanced on the Winter Palace. The guns of the city fortress were trained on the Tsar's residence, and those inside were given 20 minutes to leave before they opened fire. Then, the last troops loyal to the Tsar remaining, the Imperial Guard, abandoned their posts. He may not have known it yet, but Nicholas II had just been deposed by his own troops. He had lost his capital and his country. His fate, and that of his family, hung in the balance. It's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping 
and 365-day returns.